Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Mike Savas. Before we get to Mike, I have a few announcements. And first and foremost, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there and see photos of our guests, see links to their social media. You can see stories that I've written. You can see stories that some of the guests have written. And our social media is Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. We're on Facebook, at Travel Tales Podcast. There are links to Apple Podcast and Stitcher Radio. We're on iHeartRadio and Spotify, basically anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on those services, I ask, as always, please, please give us a good rating. That helps more people find the show by boosting our presence there, and that's always a cool thing to do. You think you'd be right for the show? Maybe you know somebody would be right for the show? Maybe you just want to tell me nice things. Maybe you have travel questions. For any of that, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Regular followers of this show may have noticed one thing about this week's episode. It's late. That's right. I missed the normal Thursday release date. And I can't remember in, about, in the last 10 years of doing this when I did that. Now, this has come down to numerous things. One was that I was traveling for 12 days in Florida and in Puerto Rico. Took my first flight in a year and a half. And I will say there's not a lot I miss about the flying experience other than getting to different destinations. Once I arrive, great. The flying experience, nothing great about it. I will say people were very well behaved. They wore their masks. They followed the rules on all my flights, and that was great. Got to see my family, which was also great. South Beach, Miami, not so great. Not a fan. And many of the locals I know down there will agree with me that the quality of South Beach has, uh, has gone down a bit. It's, uh, I, it's hard to put it in words. It's a little sketchy, a little grimy. The locals don't seem to hang out there much anymore, if they ever did. But there are cooler places to hang out in Miami and in Florida. The locals seem to have moved on to the Brickell neighborhood and the Wynwood neighborhood or to some of the neighboring towns. But South Beach, ooh, crowded, heavy cop presence. It just wasn't nice. I mean, there's some beautiful restaurants and some nice hotels, but there's certainly nicer beaches. And that's all I'll say. Puerto Rico was good, although very brief. Again, San Juan and the area around the hotels could have done without. Nicer when you got out of the city to more secluded places. Anyway, the trip, however brief, was a success. And although keeping a mask on for six hours on a plane was uh, not fun and not ideal, the end result was worth it. And if it's what we got to do now to leave the country and to be mobile, then that's what we'll have to do. And it felt good to travel again. But on the flip side of that, I had planned to interview some people while on the trip. I have friends in Puerto Rico, and for one reason or another, recording there didn't work out. I also had some guests lined up for when I got back. And for one reason or another, that didn't work out. And when people cancel, things have to be moved, things happen. And I knew I was playing it close by not having uh, an extra episode banked before I left town. I was playing a little fast and loose. I gambled and lost. But luckily, here comes Mike Savas to the rescue. I was contacted by his publicist or friend or someone close to him, and they told me his story. Mike is a guy from the New York area in the concert promotion business, and he had what he calls a midlife awakening in that he saw his time off during the pandemic as the perfect opportunity to do something he's wanted to do for a long, long time, which is to travel to 12 countries in 12 months and learn 12 new skills that he's never done before. And he's about five months in, and in this time, he's already been a conservation ranger in Kenya. He's learned free diving in the Bahamas, capoeira fighting in Brazil, salsa dancing in Colombia, surfing in Costa Rica, and now he's in Portugal at a property he owns, planning his next adventure. So I got a chance to talk to him at his place in Porto, which I hear is beautiful, and I'm insanely jealous. And it was great to meet him. We had a great chat, and I'm going to try for the quickest turnaround ever on this show by editing and posting this episode on the same day. So I'm going to stop talking and get to editing. 
You can follow Mike on Instagram at his handle, Savas on the go, S-A-V-A-S on the go. He's got a YouTube channel, and I'll have links to all these at TravelTalesPodcast.com. So please enjoy my conversation with Mike Savas. On your um, Instagram page, it just lists you as entrepreneur. Now, that can mean a lot of things. <laughs> Drug dealers say entrepreneur too. So what really is uh, entrepreneur? And uh, when you introduce yourself to people like you are now, Uh explain yourself a little bit. What do you do? Uh, Well, well, Mike, normally I stutter and laugh and I decide how much I want to reveal. Uh, But for (laughs) the the last 15 years, I've been working in the concert touring industry um, and helping artists produce their global concert tours. So what, what that looks like in actuality is when big name artists decide they're going to go out on tour, um, they normally do three or four or five different legs of that tour, UK, Europe, US, Australia. So I work with the management team and the artists to create and execute their VIP experiences. So that's if you go on Ticketmaster, type in your favorite artist, you see a little star that says meet and greet with so-and-so or backstage tour, Q&A session, front row ticket. I'm the guy who everyone hates but they don't know it's me because I come up with that. I price that, which is the part people hate. Um, and then I have events teams around the world that execute those programs. So the pretty girls and handsome guys that meet you at the door with the laminate lanyard, walk you backstage, and hopefully whatever you purchased online is what you receive on site and we blow away your expectations. Cool. Well, as someone who made his living through live performing for the many of the last uh, 30 years, I got to imagine this last year was as bad for you as it was for me on that business front. Couldn't have been worse, brother. I don't think I've seen the paycheck since, uh, yeah, March of 2020. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, well, let's talk about what you have been doing the last year. Was was the pandemic the inspiration and the work stoppage, the inspiration for you to take off around the world? And uh, what was it? So it was certainly not the inspiration. No, just an opportunity that I decided to seize. This has been something that the project I'm on is called Month in the Making. And I'm taking uh, 12 months to go to 12 different countries and learn 12 unique skill sets. So these are things I've always fantasized about, always wondered what it would be like to live a different identity. Um, it stems back to childhood, truth be told. You know, I remember being in my uh, bedroom wondering, imagining, uh, fantasizing that I had a ninja's lair in my closet that my mom didn't know about, you know, and had samurai swords and ninja stars. And then from there, I go like, I wonder what it'd be like to be a backup dancer. Or, uh, you know, I wonder what it'd be like to live in some sort of weird cave and ride on horseback to the desert. So I think we all have these sorts of dreams to one regard or another. For me, they never really left my mind. And and I've always said uh, no to to the custom career choices and yes to uh, roads less traveled, uh, hence becoming a roadie and working in concert touring. So I had been planning uh, this trip for about uh, 12 to 15 years in different iterations. It took different versions of it. It evolved. I remember I had a countdown clock on my uh, Mac at one point to do it when I turned 35, but then I got a girlfriend and that didn't happen. So then I was like, okay, when I turn 40, I'm going to do it. So you know, I have notes going back to yeah, 2012 on my iPhone about what the chapters would be and what the skills would be. Uh, so when COVID came around, um, I w- I'm not one to sit still. I gave it, a, you know, I think, two or three months of, of quarantine. And then I started to, to dip my foot in, in the traveling scene again in, in May, actually, of 2020. Um, I came back to Europe and then I decided, you know what, now's the time to do month in the making. So it went from uh, when I was going to be 40 or 41 to fast tracking it, ramping up to my 40th birthday. So I I turned 39 about a month ago. Uh, I'm just about halfway done with month in the making. So I'm five chapters in, uh, what is that? Seven left to go. And it kind of gave me the push that I needed to make it happen. And more importantly, the bandwidth and attention that it deserves. Right. I mean, was the point, always to uh, record it and or make a show out of it or uh, a book, a podcast? I mean, what a YouTube channel or was it just a personal thing? It's always been a personal, personal journey of mine and just a a challenge that I set for myself, something that frankly, it's it's as exciting as it's been to think about it. And as much as it sort of pulled me through life, like I can't wait until like, imagine the one thing you've always dreamt about whatever that is, this has been my one thing. So it's been pulling me in this direction. And now that I'm here, I kind of looked at it 
as subjectively as I could and thought, wow, this is really cool, actually. And it, it would be such a shame not to share the journey, both from an entertainment standpoint, but also a transformational and sort of an inspirational standpoint. And I kind of felt it uh, to almost like a duty to do that. Um, not that it would be selfish not to share it, but I, I knew how much people who care about me would want to be part of the journey. And I think it has some significant uh, good lessons and good takeaways that might inspire or resonate with other people. Well, we should tell people where you are calling from. You're in Porto, Portugal right now, which mm -hmm. I have always heard amazing things about. And as I told you off uh, before we started recording that I've only been to like Lisbon and the Algarve, which I love both of those. Mm -hmm. So Porto's a, a northern port city. And what and you said before we started recording that it might be your favorite city in the world. What is it about Porto? Um, are you a Game of Thrones fan? Yeah. Okay. Imagine King's Landing was a real city, and that's Porto. So it's, okay. it's, it's well, it's you know, they shot that in Dubrovnik. I know, I know. <laughs> um, so it's it's pretty darn close here. Um, it's look, it's medieval. It's the cobblestone roads. It's uh, my neighbors are a 16th century Medici church and 11th century. I don't know who built that other church. Mm. Um, I have the river two blocks to the left. I have the ocean eight blocks uh, to the right. And it's just riddled with, with culture and authenticity. The Portuguese, especially in the North, are super welcoming. Um, so on a, on a separate journey, I decided to buy this place about three years ago now, prior to starting Month in the Making. And I won't say on a whim, because it wasn't on a whim, but I never even heard of the city. I flew in for 36 hours. I saw eight properties, and I bought the first one that I saw, signed a contract in Portuguese that I couldn't read, and sent a 10% non-refundable deposit to an account that I wasn't sure that I could secure a mortgage on. But needless to say- But that's it bold. Out. That is bold. <laughs> Well, I mean, why Portugal as opposed to all these other places around oh, the world? So, look, Portu Portugal has some really um, incredible programs for expats and, and, and digital nomads, if you will. Um, you know, the top two that are most interesting to me are the non-habitual taxpaying resident scheme, which is a 10-year 0% uh, tax on any income generated outside of Portugal. Being a U.S. citizen, you still pay U.S. taxes, but I, I won't get into detail on all those uh, programs, um, but you can reduce your, your, your tax implications uh, legally. By, by being a resident of Portugal. Um, and they also have a golden visa program where you can secure European citizenship. I already have European citizenship through my heritage, but it just showed me how friendly they were to foreigners and how easy they make the process. Um, so, and nearest airport to New York City, which is where my family's at. Well, I heard now that you know, because of all these things that you mentioned, that it's filling up with a lot of expats and uh, they're gonna start, you know, I don't know, shutting it down, but at least raising well, the costs of doing that. I just ran in from a meeting about this. Uh, end of this year, the Golden Visa program will shut down along the coast. So you can still apply for it in the interior. I don't know how many kilometers it is from the coast, but that means Porto, Lisbon, a couple other things along the coast will no longer the be Algarve. Uh, yep, the Algarve, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so you can still do it. And Portugal, frankly, is the cheapest of all the European countries to quote unquote buy citizenship. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, let's start with your story. You are, are a New Yorker. Yeah, man. Born and born and raised in New Jersey. Actually, my uh, family in Jersey, Florida, and Los Angeles. That is um, the most uh, always, New York thing I've ever heard. Yeah, right? Come on, like, yeah. <laughs> New York, <laughs> L.A., and Florida. <laughs> that's there it, you go. That's it. So, a big Italian, Greek, Irish family. Uh, we're all very close, very loud. Um, certainly, the traveler amongst the group. And and it, for me, this all started with a program called Semester at Sea. Have you heard of them? Oh yeah. Right. Well, I've had, I've talked to a number of people on this show that, oh, yeah. that, and a lot of them, that was their uh, thing that, that turned the switch. Well, look, once you get a taste of the travel bug, there's no harder drug in the world. You know, it's very hard to shut that tap off. So um, I, I ended up getting involved with semester at sea, not once, but twice. And I joined their alumni board. And for those listening, it's a study abroad program on a university ship. It holds 600 students and travels to about 10, uh, 10 different, eight to 10 ports over a, 100 day voyage fall and spring semesters so it's just um it, you know my second day on the ship mike we went to cuba we we're the largest group of students that could enter cuba at the time and we're this is going to get become dark very quickly but so we're in cuba we're going to go to a salsa club we had some mojitos you know it's incredible i'm 19 years old 
And then we're in uh, four Coco taxis, which are like almost like tuk-tuks, open air taxis. And this car comes speeding by me, crashes into the taxi behind me, spins out, crashes into two more, all of which were friends of mine. So a head-on collision in Cuba, we get rushed to the hospital. One of my friends is in dire, dire conditions. Um, Fast forward, everyone's fine other than the one guy. He had to get medevac back to the U.S. But the following night, Fidel Castro hosts a press conference for us for five hours, tells us that the drunk driver was, quote unquote, taken care of, (laughs) wraps, wraps the press conference, then throws a party for us at an old mafia house with horse meat just for us and the University de Havana students, a thousand of us. And this is the third night on board. I, I saved someone's life in Cuba. I met Fidel Castro and I'm eating horse <laughs> and salsa dancing at an old mafia house. Like, how does that not change your perspective on things? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, beat, this beats the frat house. Back yeah. At, uh, yeah. So, And also in Jersey, there's a what's that one area in town of Jersey that has the, the big Portuguese community? There's like a big one right outside oh, of New York. I think you're talking about Newark, which is actually I think it's Brazilian. Oh, no, I think there is one Portuguese community there. I don't even know that. I used to live in Brooklyn. And I remember going there and I met some family there once. Anyway, Mm. we're going. Mm. Um, But so you've been you've been to five different places, right? In in this uh, journey, five. Yeah. So so five jobs. Chapter five. I kicked off in uh, Costa Rica learning how to surf. Okay, Um, And you went to Nosara, right? That's where I went to uh, surf camp there. That's where I learned. I learned badly. I went I went to safari surf. Surf Safari. Okay. I don't know two those brothers. Two. Those two, uh, they're like Hawaiian brothers. Okay, cool. They've been down there for like 20 years. They're, they're down the street from where I was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How'd you do? Yeah, man. Great. By, by the end of, by the end of the month, I was, you know, I was catching waves. I was carving. I was, um, uh, uh what is it? Taking off at an angle from the waves. Mm-hmm. And there were like, you know, three or four moments where I said to myself, bro, you can surf. Like I, you know, I could, I, I paddled out, I caught waves. Um, and it was great. I got injured. I bruised my rib cage, you know? <laughs> so, so it was really special. Um, from there I went to, to Colombia and I, I, I learned how to salsa dance, uh, Kali style, which is the fastest form of, of salsa dancing, very theatrical. Um, I, I hired this uh, woman named Carol who was uh, in the Super Bowl with JLo and Shakira. So that was like the dance troupe. And I said, look, if I'm going to learn salsa, I have to do a show but if I'm going to be in a dance show, there's no way I'm performing and not doing the dirty dancing segment. I will end this performance with the lift. So we, we practiced for a month. I performed at the number one salsa club in Colombia and half of the performance was salsa. The next half was the dirty dancing sequence with the lift at the end. <laughs> um, then I went to Brazil to learn capoeira, which is a Brazilian martial arts, kind of like dance fighting, if you will. Um, and then I had to detour because of COVID from Chile, where I was going to become a gaucho slash cowboy to free diving in the Bahamas, learning how to, you know, go down deep and uh, spearfish and whatnot. Uh, and I just wrapped up in Kenya, becoming a conservation ranger. So I spent the month with the guys uh, learning how to track humans, track animals, uh, you know, bush first aid, uh, how to handle a weapon, how to handle snake bites, things like this. Well, well, let's go back to Colombia because that was the last trip I took out of the country before COVID. So I got back mm-hmm. January 25th of mm-hmm. 2020, and that was my last international trip. Um, mm-hmm. But I was in Medellin. Mm. And were you only in Cali? And, and is the Cali dancing different than the Medellin dancing? Uh, it, it, it is different. It is different styles of salsa. Um, and we did make it up to Medellin. Sort of the way this program has been running is I spend three weeks in one city learning the skill. And then the last week I take it on the road. So in Colombia, we took uh, we did a salsa tour of Colombia and we drove all the way up through the Valle de Cocos, which are the, the biggest uh, palm trees in the world. And we danced among the trees as the fog was setting on us. And then we went to Medellin and danced salsa in some <laughs> of the, uh, some of the places there, too. And you did the dirty dancing one. Oh, absolutely. Go, go on my Instagram. You'll see the lift at me. I pop that thing really good. Did you put baby in the corner? That's what I want to know. <laughs> you know, what's so funny, we did a sequence for like the, the YouTube episodes that I'm doing where she doesn't speak the best English. And she says to me, nobody puts baby in the corner. Me being baby <laughs> in the instance. And then we go to the club and dance. <laughs> That's perfect. How was your uh, Spanish before all this? Uh, I'm, I'm fairly fluent in Spanish, you know, conversational for sure. I can do business in Spanish. So, so that's been a huge help along the way. Absolutely. So when you go to these places, and I mean, it's not hard to take 
surf lessons in uh, Costa Rica for a month. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That you can pretty much anybody can sign up. Yep. To uh, do things like uh, a ranger in Kenya. Yep. Do you? How much prep goes into this? Do you set it up? Going? Do you tell them what you're doing? That this is a one month. Yeah, they they know exactly what the program is going to be. Well, in terms of spending a month there and I really want to learn a skill and we're going to be video uh, videoing it and documenting it. So in some of these countries, like like Kenya, for example, and uh, in Colombia, those were planned beforehand where I had identified the master or the instructor had worked out an agreement, worked out a place to stay. and really, in, in, in Kenya, more so than the others, it required a lot of advance because I was going to be training. It's a paramilitary group. I needed special permission. They don't normally let in outsiders. Um, you know, and there's some, some, some real dangerous components to that aspect uh, of, of what I'm doing. Um, but in, in the, uh, free diving in the Bahamas and Capoeira in Brazil, um, it was a little bit less planning. I mean, I, I, I had a, I'd spoken to a few people wasn't sure if I was going to work with them, wasn't sure of my timeline. And I'm very much a last minute sort of guy. Like I pulled the trigger, like ask anyone who's been on this program with me, like, are you going to go on Friday? I'm like, ask me on Thursday evening. Maybe I'll have a flight. Maybe I won't. I'm flying out of here on Sunday. I don't have a ticket back to the U S right now. Um, so I, I very much just showed up with a loose plan and figured it out on the ground. Wow. Okay. Well, the, um, tracking in, in Kenya though, that is, a dangerous thing. These, these Rangers get killed. I mean, yeah. I mean, did you have any kind of like gun training or military background or anything? No, not pre not previously. I mean, I've, I've shot guns at, at ranges before. Um, and you know, we didn't have any, uh, close incidents where we were the, the place I had went to, there were no recent, uh, dangerous po- poaching, in, uh, moments. Um, so we kind of cleared that beforehand. Not that I wouldn't have gone. I, I very much would have been fine with being in real dangers way. Um, the danger in this month more so was with animals, um, not so much humans. We did catch one poacher slash pseudo poacher. He was doing some shady stuff. We weren't sure. Uh, so so his punishment was actually to do 10 pushups in the bush. They were like, look, we can take <laughs> you down to the station and charge you for trespassing. Or you do ten push-ups and you become an informant for us. And he's like, "I'll do the ten push-ups." Yeah. <laughs> um, but we found it was cool. Like that was only the third day out there, and we were walking, if you can envision this, and we're looking for you know human tracks. We're looking for animal tracks, so you know you know is there a rhino here? Is there an elephant? Do we need to be aware? Um, and then all of a sudden, me and the two rangers walk through this little bush area, and um, my, uh, the videographer, her name was Sharice. All of a sudden, boom! She hits the floor. We're like. God, like, Sharice, what is wrong with you? And she'd been caught by a snare and she's wearing big military boots. And this snare nearly ripped that boot in half, brand new. And then we look and we're like, oh, wow. Okay, that well, that's what we're looking for, animal snares. And then we realize we're in like a minefield of brand new planted snares. So we found 17 of these things and each snare can capture 10 animals, so within that hour, you know, our, for argument's sake, we, we saved 170, they call them dictics, they're little baby deer, like these super cute little bambies. Um, we saved, you know, perceptually the lives of 170 dictics or other small animals. Well, this is a fear that I had because I was in Uganda and Rwanda in 2019 doing the gorilla trek. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these, they've done a great job in that aspect of, of, of protecting the gorillas by tourism dollars and using yeah. it to spread throughout the community. And there were a lot of our guides were former poachers. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. worry was with uh, the COVID shutdown that all of a sudden their income stream is gone and then they're going to go back to poaching and poaching was on the rise in, in parts of Africa all over mm-hmm. because the tourism dollars went up, uh, went away. Mm-hmm. So, um, was that a worry that they've been having in Kenya as well? Oh, absolutely, man. And, and getting educated on the subject has truly been mind blowing for me. I mean, again, what I've learned down there is is you have, for the most part, the the Chinese uh, subsidizing the cost of these these poaching efforts, and it's for more or less uh, rhino horn and elephant tusk, some other pangolins as well. Yeah. Um, and they're doing like night operations in helicopters now where they come in with infrared goggles. They take out an elephant before they even know they're there, you know, they're gone. Um, so they're losing three rhino a day in Africa. 
um, which is which is pretty sad. And the you know they're using it for medicinal purposes, and and you know I don't know if it's pseudo scientific purposes, um, but that's what's going on. So th- there's a huge urgency to protect the animals. Um, meanwhile, you have the villagers who are more or less doing poaching for food. So they're they're not necessarily going after elephant and rhino. You know, sometimes giraffe, which I, I won't even get into the gruesome details of what a, a neck snare looks like for a giraffe and how they how they take those guys down, but it's brutal. Um, and they're catching like the smaller game, but it's all interfering with the ecosystem. So those rangers are oftentimes just combating local poachers who are trying to find a meal. So on one end of the fence, literally on the other end of the fence, it's sad because you have these people that are hungry and looking to, to make an income, yet they're destroying the local uh, animal population. What are the, where are the governments on all this? So, so again, every country in, in Africa is, is different, how they handle it and their success rates. Where I was in Kenya, from what I learned, they're having really, really high success with private conservations or uh, private conservation group. So what that looks like is they either the local tribe awards me 50,000 acres of land because they trust me and I promise them subsidies or whatever. I then go and protect this land um, through whatever means possible. Maybe I'm super wealthy. Maybe I have access to grants. In the group I was working with called Secluded Africa, they manage five luxury lodges throughout Kenya, all in different geographic zones. And then every person that stays at their lodge has to pay a conservancy fee. And the conservancy fee pays for the ranger's salary, their households, their fencing, their food. And then the rangers protect the land in which the lodge exists where the tourists come to stay. So you get to appreciate nature. You're supporting the local rangers or the local conservancy. And it's really a win-win. And and that model has been working exceptionally well in Kenya. Well, why... Capoeira. Of, I'm, I'm sensing this dance background that you have of some first salsa, and now uh, and now oh, capo- man, now you want to do dance fighting. You, you where where so, what is the background with this? All right, so so for those listening, Capoeira is a Brazilian martial art that stemmed originally from Africa, and when the the slave trade came to Brazil, the masters wouldn't let the slaves fight, obviously. So they created this modification where around the the, the fire, it looked as if they were dancing, but it's actually a very very fast and very powerful uh, combat sport, and it's normally done like one versus one with a ring of people around you and music being played and songs being sung. So it's very tribal. It's very uh, community oriented, um, but it certainly has this dance flair to it. That inspiration strictly came from the movie Only the Strong Man in the 90s. I know you've seen it. Like, (laughs) so ever since I saw that, I was like, dude, these guys can flip all through the air. What is this? And then on Semester at Sea, I went to Salvador, Brazil. I saw Capoeira in the flesh, and I just thought how badass these guys were. Um, so that's stuck in my head. So I actually, the, the challenge at the end of the month in Brazil, I always do a challenge at the end of the month to prove that I learned the skill as best I could. I went back to Salvador to the same exact street where I first saw Capoeira and I challenged the local Capoeiristas to a Capoeira uh, uh, game in, in the middle of the street. So I ripped my shirt off, I put on the Capoeira pants and we hosted this big like, you know, pseudo tournament. That's great. Well, Brazil during COVID in the news a lot. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're choosing to do all this during a unprecedented global <laughs> pandemic. So yes. give me the differences and what you, you know, Brazil's taken a lot of heat through through all this. Yeah. And, and so give me your experiences and have you been locked down? Have you gotten, had to do testing? Have you gotten vaccinated? What's the story? Yeah, man. I mean, look, the story has evolved as COVID has evolved. So, so off the bat, America was way behind all of these other countries. I felt 10 times safer being in Costa Rica and being in Colombia than I did in the U.S. You'd fly back into the U.S. No one would ask you any questions. Maybe you had to p- fill out a paper form like to some National Guard guy at the thing. He wasn't even really checking. Like it, it was a debacle. Meanwhile, you go in these other countries and, and they just have super efficient. I won't say super efficient. They have uh, super functioning systems in place. Let me give you an example. Colombia, which in most Americans' mind is like not really first world, maybe second world, maybe third world in some people's minds. I don't care if you went to the like the local hot dog stand or or like a beat up hardware store that's a shed. They had um, 
created very simple uh, antibacterial pumps using PVC pipes from like the plumbing store. So even in America now, I guarantee you, you walk into a restaurant and eight out of 10 times you're using a hand pump. Like you're pressing down on the pump yourself. That's where the bacteria is. You're not putting it on your hand immediately. Like it's not logical. So you have the local hot dog guy in Colombia who's realized you shouldn't be touching anything. Why don't you just step on it? So you have foot pedals you step on, which pumps it out. Super simple. They were doing this like day one of COVID. In Mexico, they had the anti antibacterial um, pads. So when you ever walk in a restaurant, you get disinfected on your feet. I still am yet to see that in most places in America. So, so they were just very logical with their solutions um, and very economical. Whereas America, you know, it's hit or miss. And in addition to that, the stigma, good or bad, whatever side you're on in other countries doesn't exist as much. So like, I remember walking in LA during COVID and I just felt judged. I ran the wrong way around one of the parks and everyone was staring at me like I killed their mother. And I'm like, what? Like, I don't even. And then I realized what I was doing. And, you know, maybe I was doing the wrong thing, but I, I didn't know in other countries, you didn't feel that pressure one way or the other. Everyone was just respectful and they were doing, you know, they were wearing a mask. They were being polite. No one was being a jerk about it. No one had a point to prove. And it just felt easy. There was no energy around it where it was like, am I doing the right thing? Am I not doing the right thing? It was just, hey, man, we're here. We're just trying to live. We're trying to survive. And it it just felt lighter, if that makes sense. But what wasn't Brazil's thing is like, we're not going to do anything. That was the, <laughs> that was that guy's answer, wasn't yeah. it? It was like, we're not, so, we're, not so look, we're not closing anything. We're, you know, we're just going to live and people die, they die. I mean, the people I spoke with didn't, you know, they don't have much respect for him, but, but on the state level, they were shutting down restaurants and they were implementing local lockdowns and most people, you know, were wearing masks. So I I don't think what we're seeing on the news is necessarily completely accurate. Um, That being said, you know, I would run down certain streets and they would be packed with people during during Saturday markets who who weren't wearing masks. So I think it's regional. I think it's regional. Well, the first thing my friend in Milan told me when this thing started, you know, who and it came through Europe before here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Italy shut down hard, man. I mean, they got hit bad. So she was mm-hmm. their lockdown was serious. And I said, what, do you, what advice do you have for us? Because it's coming here. Mm-hmm. And the first thing she said was, don't politicize it. Yeah. And that's the first thing America did. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> just like eventually <laughs> any kind of disease or any kind of crisis, it, it, it comes down to people caring about one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and it. And that's, how- that's the hardest thing to, I think, for people to accept that, what they saw from their fellow neighbors. Mm, it's just exactly. how few of them gave a shit about yep. each other yep. <laughs> when the chips were down. And just like, Oh yeah, they don't, he doesn't care about me at all. He, he couldn't mm. care less about anybody but themselves. And, and that's, I think that's been the hardest thing I think for a lot of people to accept. And it was eye opening for a lot of people, those jaded of, of us. <laughs> I never expected a lot of people to, you know, I've seen enough around that are just like, yeah, they don't, they don't care. But I think so, it was eye-opening to find out how many of their fellow man couldn't care less. Well, you bring up an interesting point, and, and, I'll, and, I, and I'd like to touch on it because it ties back to what I've learned on Month in the Making. And you're talking about community and support systems. And almost my, my, my thesis, which I'm still forming because I'm only on month five of this, but the more I travel, the more I realize that, that uh, happiness and fulfillment is found in uh, close groups of, of friends and family that have uh, a like-minded goal in mind, or they rely on each other for support. And in America, the biggest um, dysfunction that, that, I, that I see is that, you know, we try to make money to buy a house, to build a fence, to be private, and, and ha- kind of like live in our own like tower or castle, where, where in other countries, Maybe they don't have the opportunities we do, but they're forced to rely on each other and be part of a a friend unit or a family unit, and they're getting by. And to your point, as you as it relates to COVID, I think that's very valid. They look they look at each other as if they're part of a, a larger whole, and it's not just me and them. 
And, and as, as a human race, those small pockets of groups is where we stem from originally. And we've evolved to a point where we think we're, we're alone. And that's where people get sad and depressed. And, and the more time I spend in these like sub communities or these like, I don't even know what to call them, but these small tribes, even if they're not tribes, that's where really beautiful things are happening and that human connection still takes place. And it's about relying on one another. So, um, yeah, that's sort of part of my hypothesis in this whole journey. And, you know, you're talking about a country that so emphasizes the individual mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. eventually, you know, in, in, if everybody's out for themselves, it, 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 it's hard to keep it together. You know, mm-hmm. it, I don't know it can hold if everybody's mm-hmm. out for themselves. <laughs> you summarized it perfectly. We're too individually, uh, what do you want to say, individually focused. In a way, a, a computer virus would have been better rather than a human virus. If it would have forced us, mm-hmm. in a way, mm-hmm. it was the worst. As everybody's kind of more divided. Yeah. This came and it just like, okay, now go into your <laughs> homes and don't talk to anyone. It's like, we needed the opposite. If the yeah. computer shut down and the screen shut down, we don't have to go outside and like interact with one another. That would have been I mean, 10 times better. Uh, look, I, I tend to, I, I completely agree with you. I tend to, I'm going to flip the perspective on it. And whenever bad things, uh, you know, happen, I try to think of the long-term effects of it. And for global perspective shifts to occur, some dark things need to to go down in order for people to flip that switch. And I just hope that um, one of the takeaways is realizing how much we need other people and how much fulfillment you can get from that. Um, So thereby helping us unplug from the shit that we know we all hate um, (laughs) and and, and get back to the one-on-one stuff. Well, give me um, some travel tales of any kind of danger you were in. Did you, have you had any sickness, any kind of injuries? Any You've done some, a lot of physical things. Yeah, man. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I've, I've suffered a couple injuries. Um, the one that sticks out is doing capoeira in Brazil. My friend challenged me. He goes, look, I don't care what you say. There's no way you can learn. He's like, there's no way you can learn anything a month in a month, first of all. And the only way I have any respect for you is if you can do a standing backflip by the time you leave Brazil. So in the background of learning capoeira, I was also trying to learn a standing backflip. Um, and I was getting pretty darn close up until the second to last day, which is when I was back in Salvador to challenge the local you know, fighters. Um, I was practicing and practicing and I was just about to go for like my, like do my real first one. And I jump up and I land short and I compress the muscles in my back. And it was just like, Oh, that's a cut. That's serious. And yet I had to still battle all those dudes the following day in the street. So I did a couple like warm up stretches, got it loose and I just sucked up the pain and went for it. So I'm still slightly recovering from, from a pulled back muscle, just trying to do a 39-year-old standing backflip. Um, you know, the, the bruised ribcage from surfing, jumping up and down. I came off like, I don't know, a six-foot wave going out the back, and it just the board snapped up and hit me in the chest. That was not fun. Um, but I've been, I've been fairly lucky with anything serious. I can assure you that it doesn't get easier as you get older. <laughs> so do this now. Let me tell yeah. you. Uh, so after five months, uh, where are you off to next? And what are the what's on the plan? What's on the list? Yeah, man. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of looking at it as regions. So, so South America is more or less a wrap. Um, I did not explore Africa nearly a must, uh, enough, but in that same sort of time zone, I'm going to shoot up to Europe uh, and learn solo sailing, performance solo sailing in France. Um, on the western coast of France, and then I will likely pop down to Italy to become a chef. I'm a terrible cook, terrible cook. So, so this is something I'm probably most fearful of is learning how to cook, which sounds strange. Um, the, the the plan was to go to Egypt and become a treasure hunter. That that may have to get uh, swapped with something else. And then, regardless of what the fourth month fourth month is in this region, I'll go to Southeast Asia, which is probably what I'm most excited about. And I'll become a samurai in Japan, uh, a, a nomadic eagle hunter in Mongolia, and some form of monk in Tibet or Bhutan. Um, there's a school. It's called like, I forget. It's like the School of the Five Shadows. It sounds like a something out of Doctor Strange. And they teach all these different subsects of, of uh, Buddhism and Shaolin and I'm going to pick one of those and just see if I have any wizard blood in me. <laughs> you're, going to be, you're going to be Kung Fu. That's what you're going to be, yeah. just wandering. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, yeah that's, that's really interesting in terms of like 
Is Egypt going to be postponed because of any other reason? Is it political climate or is it just their health or is it? it it's, you know, some of these, th- I'm, I'm not, I'm a big believer in like, you know, uh, I don't know if you want to say manifest, putting things in the universe and, and seeing what happens, but like not having attachment to them. So I really wanted to be a treasure hunter, yet nothing is coming of it. Like I don't have anyone reaching out saying like, I know the guy, it's just not clicking. Whereas other things are clicking and presenting themselves. Um, and it's sort of like the path of least resistance to me. I don't know if that's the universe presenting it or whatever, uh, because this is taking up so much mental and physical capacity. It's almost as if I need to be a little bit lazy with choosing the next step because I don't, I literally don't have the time to plan them. So it's just like, go to the airport, fly to Italy, find, you know, there, there is some, there is certainly some prepping, uh, but, but that's kind of how it's been going. Oh, I forgot to ask you. I've, I've been scuba diving for 30 years, but I haven't done much free diving. How did you take to it? And how long could you now hold your breath underwater? Cool, man. So, so free, I, I've definitely done a bit of scuba diving, um, nowhere near, you know, great at it, but free diving was incredible. Incredible. I had no idea the human body evolved to be underwater the way it can be. We literally have this thing called the mammalian dive reflex, okay? Where, where, where we truly are meant to be underwater, not living, but spending time. And our body, let me tell you how it actually works, right? So you go underwater and you sort of, it's right under your eyes and you let water hit your eyelids. Maybe you tap it, you turn on those senses and then your body knows it's underwater. So things start changing internally. And one of these dive reflexes is set up to ensure you cannot die underwater. So let me kind of break this misconception. If you um, run out of air underwater, which in fact is very difficult, your throat will close off and you will, assuming you're not stopped by something or, or, or you've done something incredibly stupid, you'll actually rise to the surface. So your body will stop inhaling. It will cut your, your, your throat off, make you go unconscious and float you to the surface. Once the air hits your face, you gasp for air and you breathe life back into your lungs. <laughs> so, so this is something that you're like, wait, what? Um, so literally, like we evolved to be able to survive imminent death underwater. This is just one example. To answer your question, um, I never time myself the final week. But just two weeks in, I was at three minutes and 43 seconds without, without too much pain or discomfort. Um, and I was, you know, I got down to, uh, what was it, about 45, 50 feet. But again, we never got to test it at the end. I, I, I would think I could probably get to somewhere between 60 and 80 feet if, if I was given another shot. Wow. Um, yeah, which is pretty incredible. And, and, when when you can when you know mentally that you literally have the oxygen of of, of four minutes, they say that it, it's about two fifty percent of that is is underwater. What you can move underwater. So say you have two minutes of being able to dive down, and it's not a quote unquote static breath hold. That's a long time to be down there. So so all it is then is mental and your ability to equalize, and you can equalize at different depths. You, you sort of equalize um, as you continue down. There's a special way to equalize free diving that's different than uh, like scuba diving. Um, but what's crazy, man, check this out. 30 feet down, you're in, you're in one atmosphere. Um, is it 30 feet? If anyone free dives is listening, they're probably going to make this guy's way off. I'm just going to say it's 30 feet. I'm pretty sure it is. And then 30 to 60 feet, it's another atmosphere. Once you hit 60 feet, gravity shifts and the ocean pulls you down to the center of the earth. So you don't even need to move. You just sit there and you literally get sucked in like a magnet down, 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 down for as long as you can continue equalizing. So that's how these people, I was hanging out with guys who could dive 350 feet. I think it was, um, they were, these guys were, they were top of the game. They were, they were professionals. Um, you know, seven minute breath holds. The thing is, anyone's capable of a long breath hold. All it takes is uh, your, your, your chest cavity and your lungs to be able to handle the, the nitrous and a bit of practice. And again, more so than anything, it's mine. So one of the things you learn is to resist the urge to breathe. So when, when you're underwater and your, your, your body goes, but that thing, if you actually don't breathe, it's just your diaphragm pumping 
and then it settles back down and relaxes. All you need to do is say, I'm not going to go up and you keep your body there and your body goes, oh, okay, I can be down here for longer. And you go through that every maybe 15, 20 seconds, but you're still down there and you're totally fine. So factually, you have enough oxygen in your body. Mentally, you think you don't. So you have to say to yourself, I'm not dying. I'm okay. And am I going to bail or not? I got to learn this. I've been, you know, <laughs> after diving, you know, I, I want to be down there under, you know, as, as someone who loves the ocean and loves, and loves diving though, the, uh, the tank and everything else is a hassle. Sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to mm-hmm. be down there without it. And know, so. the way you connect with sea life when you have nothing on you is it's different than scuba diving. It's, it's, you literally have an emotional or spiritual connection with these animals. They look at you like you look at them. They're like, who the hell is this? What does he do? And they're just all staring at you and they want to come up and touch you. Even sharks. Like I was with one of these guys who like all he does for a living is he dives with sharks, essentially loves it like big, scary sharks. And they're basically like puppies. They want to come up and play with you and nip you and, and test you and see what you got. But if you're the alpha puppy, they don't mess with you. So you have to dive down and go towards the shark and show them that you're not scared of them. And they immediately kind of step in line and you can just shift them by taking the top of their sort of nose and pushing them out of the way. Even great whites and things like this, they're, they're not as dangerous as you would think. We just have this, we don't know how to engage with them properly. Yeah. I love sharks. I love, mm-hmm. I've talked to a number of people on here when shark uh, rescue organizations mm-hmm. and things like that, but um, yeah, I could talk about the reefs and everything all day, but we got to move on. And I just wanted to, uh, ask you the question that I'm sure you get all the time and you don't have to get too personal about it, but I'm sure everybody asks you at some point, okay, how are you paying for all this? I mean, do you, <laughs> yeah. do you, do you have sponsors or do you? No, no, not at all. This It's all self-funded. I'm not, I'm not selling anything. Um, in fact, I'm giving away 250,000 airline miles as I go that I've personally uh, accrued over the years so other people can sort of live their own version That's of nice it. That's nice of you. So I give 25K away every, every month. I, I, frankly, I owe a few months to people, uh, <laughs> I, I, but, I, but I've, I've promised it. I've made it public, so I will do it. Um, and look, I've been uh, saving for, for my you know, the last decade. I've been on tour where a lot of the costs are covered. Um, and... You know, it, it's it's pricey, but in my mind, it's completely worth it. You know, some of these, the people that I've found, a lot of them have been um, open and inspired by the story and they want to do me favors and give me discounts. Others see some value in the video content and the photo content. Um, so for the most part, I haven't gotten anything for free. I've certainly gotten some discounts on things. Um, and, 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 you know, in exchange for content and, and you know, I don't have a huge following. Um, but, but I do my best to tell the story. And I think really people just resonate with it. And they're like, man, that just sounds epic. Like I want to support you. And it, again, it comes back to that tribalism and finding good people. <laughs> What's been the biggest surprise so far? The, the biggest thing that you didn't expect? Um, well, I guess two things. One is, is how love and romance have surfaced during all of this. And, and the, the personal, evolution of, I don't want to say evolution because that implies I've reached some state of enlightenment, but just the varied experience I have as, as it comes to um, those, those moments with people, whether it be like a physical experience, an emotional connection, a spiritual connection, and like a sharing of energy, which has been really enlightening um, to experience and, and sort of, again, knowing I'm going to leave at the end of the month and maybe it's a fleeting moment. Maybe, maybe it's longer than that. But how that changes the course of your experience for good or for bad has been really special. Um, and then what's been surprising to me is how much of a, not how difficult it is physically, but, but how challenging it is almost mentally to continue to say yes to things that make you uncomfortable and that you suck at. Like imagine every day you're doing something you know nothing about and you're consuming new data and you're learning and you just have to show up and know you're going to suck at it and do your best and stay positive. Um, after every month, I feel like I need 
three months off to recuperate, you know? And I'm just like, I need to sleep. I need to talk to my family. And, but I need to keep going. Um, and, and it's like, I get to keep going. Like, I'm super excited about it. Simultaneously, all the struggles of being human are very present. Uh, and I, and I want to almost be sensitive to them and reflect and go, what did I learn? Who did I meet? What does this all mean? I don't have the time to do it. So I just keep going and keep going. So that's been more of a struggle than I would have thought. Cause I'm very much a go with the flow sort of guy, no problem, no problem. Let's do it. And that's how I'm tackling it. Yet there is this uh, toll that it takes on you, on you emotionally and mentally. Do you think you can go back to work after this? I'm running my business as this all happens, man. So, so yeah, <laughs> like I can't, I can't look. I, frankly, I love my gig. I love my business. Love all the people in it. You know, I, fortunately, I'm in entertainment. It, it's full of excitement and pretty things and um, exciting shows. So, yes, I, I definitely can get back to it. Um, this has inspired me to be even more so ambitious to give back as I go and layering uh, some sort of impact into my, my traditional uh, career. So I have solutions there. I'm working towards those things. But the, the more I see, the more good that's going on in the world, it just kind of refills that cup of, of okay, I got to do my job. I got to do my part. I got to give back more because otherwise, like, what am I just going to? Am I here to make money and like do fun things? No, like that kind of gets old. Uh, their concerts are starting back up again, especially in the fall. Mm-hmm. And now with uh, distancing and things like that, th- that affects your meet and greets, I would assume. Yeah. Yep. How, how are you changing the concert uh, experience in this new age? So we have, I have a number of tours going out in the fall. I have, I have Genesis in the UK and in North Ooh, America. that's big. Yeah, we, we have Guns N' Roses in Australia um a few other tours which aren't announced yet and and some of them uh well those guys aren't doing meet and greets but a number of acts are still doing meet and greets but you know look the customer experience on site you just make the best of it so do you do q a sessions acoustic sets some people are going virtual what what i'm most excited about is again layering in social impact into tours so finding artists who want to continue to do live shows but how can you give back to the communities you're touring in and helping them identify new revenue streams which will subsidize those social impact causes um so like as an example we did a thing with with cat stevens a few years ago now where every package we sold i think we planted was it one tree per package we sold yeah, it might have been like 20,000 trees or was it 100? I can't remember what it was. But we planted all these trees in Africa. And that felt really good because people were paying money to see his show and get an amazing experience. This was being funneled back to some charity he cared about. So finding um, organizations that have a really cool story, finding an artist that cares about that story, and then using the, the fan experience and the fan dollars to fund that ecosystem rather than just going into the artist's pocket. It's sort of like the cherry on top, but the cherry being social impact. Give me one good rock and roll story as a fan. Come on. As a, as a, give me a tour story that you tell all the time that you're going, you won't believe, (laughs) you won't believe what happened in this town that I saw. Oh my gosh. All right. This. So I was on the Britney Spears circus tour in 2009 in St. Petersburg, Russia. I met, beautiful Russian girl. It was actually a group of 18 of them. They were all dressed up in eighties outfits for a costume birthday party. (laughs) And have you been to Russia? No, it's on my uh, dirty dozen list of places. I I still haven't been. Put it on the dirty list for sure. I mean, you know, they drink vodka there. Like it's, it's water. So it it was a series of nights in in Russia, but um, the part that I'm thinking about was uh, I went, let me just see if I'm going to get anyone in trouble for this. No, I think I'm okay. So, so I'm with, I'm with two guys at the time uh, that I work with and uh, these three Russian girls and uh, we had taken them out to dinner. And meanwhile, they're serving vodka left and right. And, and one of these guys is like a big executive. So I tell the girl that I'm, that I'm on the date with, like, look, I need to be responsible tonight. Like, I got to take it easy. This is like, a, you know, this is the decision maker. Um, and we go, we go. And so, so again, I'm trying to be responsible, be a good guy. <clears throat> Night transpires. And now we are ripping down the highway in an SUV. The doors open. We're jumping outside the door, like nearly getting hit by cars. The girls say to us, well, we want to take you to a place. We, uh, the place we work. We're like, great. Cause we had a host. I had hosted them at the concert. So we end up at a strip club. 
um, their cocktail waitress at a strip club and the strip club is entirely dead. No one's in it. Beautiful bar. No one's in it. it has a long stage catwalk in the middle with some metal chain link fences. So we're at the bar, we're getting drinks. And then all of a sudden this siren goes off this, like the loudest siren you've ever heard. And I, I'm not messing with you, brother. 70 girls come out of the back. They line this place wall to wall. Me and the two guys I'm with, like, we, you know, we've been drinking all night. We're like, what is going on? Anyway, the night continues on. Keep in mind, I was supposed to be responsible this night. Mm-hmm. This is how the night ends. I remember this executive um, I'm thinking about. He's sitting on the floor, Indian style of this club <laughs> with, with a drink in his hand, staring up at me and He's staring up at me because I'm hanging upside down with my shirt off from the chain link catwalk stage to Britney Spears toxic being played as I showed the strippers how they should be dancing because I thought I was a better dancer than they were. (laughs) Uh, So that was a fun one. I nearly missed my bus call the following morning. I have a couple scars from being chased by the (laughs) Russian police and, you know, it just went on and on. the The police chased you out of there? Uh, not from the club. That that was that was the night prior. That was the night prior. I had accidentally um, broken a bus stop, like a like a yeah bus stop. You know the big glass yeah. panel. I I was playing a joke as if I was running into them on by accident, but I was running into them on purpose. And they were made of plastic. The first two were made of plastic. The third one was made of double steel pane glass. So I smash through this thing. I start bleeding. And this is on a very busy street. And me, I look at my friends. They're like, run. I was like, okay. So I start running. They throw me their shirt. I cover my, my arm. Two cops with AK-47 start chasing me down streets, like dark, dark alley streets. I don't know where I'm at. I end up at the, the hotel. I go into my friend's room to try to like hide the evidence. I think the KGB is going to come in and arrest me and Anyway, it was all fine. A couple stars later, it's all good. <laughs> Why don't we get the feeling that there's more where that came from in these yeah. evenings? <laughs> uh, you know. Ah, oh, rock and roll. Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we should uh, get your business out of the way and tell people where you, they can find you on Instagram. and. Uh, yeah, YouTube. sure, man. We're, well, look, we're telling the story on a, on a few different channels. Like Instagram is all the daily, you know, as I go. And that's just Savas on the go. My last name's Savas. And on the go is sort of my 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 way I get through life. So Savas <laughs> on the go. Um, and then similarly, I have a YouTube channel where we're uh, telling a, a couple episodes a month of, of what I'm experiencing. So that's just on YouTube, Savas on the go. Um, and you can just hit me up. I'm a pretty social guy. I like to talk to people. You know, if you find the story inspiring, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear about it. Or uh, if you want help on sort of planning your own, I framed it as a midlife awakening. <laughs> so if, 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 if you if you have similar concept, man, I'd love to do X, Y, and Z. I just love talking about that stuff. So we'll have links to uh, wherever sites you have on uh, Travel Tales podcast next to your story. And uh, I'm glad you reached out, man. This is uh, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Like, look, if you want to touch base in a couple months, I'll fill you in on whatever month I'm in, what chapter. And I love doing things from like on location. So if you ever want to do something live and I have a samurai temple behind me, you let me know. <laughs> yeah. And I want to get back to uh, Portugal because I have some other friends there and uh, I just love it over there as well. All right. Well, come to my spot in Porto. It's here ready to go. It's in the main square of the town. And I have a, I'll literally show you, I'm not joking. Oh, I have I a wine barrel jacuzzi on my Whoa. patio. Here. Oh, that's nice. This is the, uh, so I made it look like an 18th century captain ship. So this is the main <laughs> square in town. Oh, that's and great! It's live, live music all day. Come on, come on through, brother. That's beautiful. Yeah, look, that's, that's beautiful. My Do you need There's a house little... sitter? Do you need a house sitter? <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take your rent money. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Do you uh, do you Airbnb it or anything? Yeah, so so look, I I, I have a lot of things going on. I do uh, themed Airbnbs around the world. So um, I have three right now: Montana, Nashville, Portugal. I'm working on a spot in Costa Rica, um, and and there'll be a whole variety of them down the line. Okay, that's great. I mean, you own them, or do you just help rent them? Yeah, out? yeah, no, I I own them. You know, um, some of them I have business partners, and I just come up with like a the quintessential cultural theme of the area, if you will. So in Nashville, it's a rock and roll theme. Every room is a different um, era of rock and roll. So I, I literally have a custom made tour bus in one of the rooms, triple stack bunk beds on both sides with ventilation. 
Um, I have a Johnny Cash room with a Folsom prison headboard, a Ryman room with the old ecclesiastical like bench and steeple <laughs> on it. Uh, in Montana, it's called the Woolly Bungalow, and it's just super cozy and fluffy and warm blankets and, um, you know, a, li- a little bit native to a degree. And then here, because it's Portugal, I went with the, the old conquistador ship, like the 18th century explorer ship. And you can see I have porthole windows that look as if you're on the ship. That's a writer's desk, a captain's desk for writing. Oh, and then great. like all my nautical memorabilia, that's a Mark V mask, uh, authentic oh, Mark yeah, V. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, the, uh, the wine barrel uh, for Porto wine. You got it, brother. <laughs> right across the river there. No, that looks great. Well, uh, send me links, uh, uh, all your stuff, and we'll talk after I uh, stop the recording here. But cool, man. Thank you so much. Such, such an honor, and good to meet you. You too. And I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody mm-hmm. at the end of each uh, discussion. What has all this travel taught you about yourself, about people, and the mm-hmm. world? I'll go back to the point I made earlier. I think that the, the key to – not necessarily the key, because that implies I have the answer – I I truly state that one of the answers to to fulfillment as a human is in connection and community and supporting the people around you and having like-minded goals. So the more you can find people who are, you know, your, your tribe or your group and you're working through things together, the more enjoyment you'll get out of life. And for me, how that looks because I'm, I've been on the road for 15 years and I'm always on the go. And as much as I'm a solo traveler, I have a community of people everywhere. Um, it's really made me appreciate those folks, even though I'm not with them. And I can't wait to, to connect with them more intimately when I'm with them. So when I'm present with my family, I want to be more present. When I'm with my friends, I want to be more you know, engaged and put the phone down and just 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 connect. It's that simple. That's great. Mike Savas, everybody. Thanks for doing this, man. Thank you, brother. 